Welcome to episode 14 of Once Upon a Lifetime. So we are back after a unexpected hiatus due to several things. One, um, having a baby and that, you know, not leaving a lot of room for other things. Um, running a school, and finally a pandemic that also came unexpectedly. I had the baby, Christina ran the school, and the pandemic hit us all. But we are back, ready to roll. The subject of this episode of Once Upon a Lifetime is Andrew Carnegie. But what have I done wrong here, Christina? I, I right away I'm reacting because I've always heard it also as Carnegie Hall and Andrew Carnegie, but in research we have learned it's Carnegie, right? It's Carnegie. It doesn't really flow. We have to get used to saying it. So if we mess up, <laughs> oops, oops. Yep. So we are going to get started on the right foot with Carnegie. I thought we'd play a little free association word game with Andrew Carnegie. It, when you think about him, what's the first word that comes to your mind, Christina? I think steel. Steel. I think wealth. Um, let's see. Ph- philanthropy. Philanthropy. <laughs> yes. I think libraries. Mm-hmm. Self-made man. Self-made man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think those are all accurate. I think it's also possible to get caught up in these contradictions that we see with him right off the bat. We think of him as sort of a ruthless businessman, right? You don't make, you don't become the richest man in the world without being ruthless. No, no. And and definitely, and, and most of his contemporaries indeed were. That was the age where being ruthless could get you very, very rich very, yes. very quickly. So you think of him as ruthless, but you also think of him as being extremely generous. And we think of him, I don't, you learn this almost right away. As soon as you start researching him, you learn that he is a total mama's boy, (laughs) but he ends up really loving and enjoying the company of strong, intelligent women. Um, He presides over the largest and most violent labor dispute, but he's also known as a friend to unions and a pacifist. And he's a technical visionary. Absolutely. He, he, he could just see almost the future. He could see the way things were going to go. But what did he do? Where, where did his vision go way off? Like what, what was the thing at the end of his life that he just totally misread? He really felt that he could just bring about world peace. Yes. He, he thought he, he <laughs> this was going to be his deal. Yes. So I just find him very contradictory. Like there's there's a lot there's lots of things about him right that are contradictory. So I am interested in this episode um and any subsequent episodes we have about him depending on how long this goes. You know, to explore, is he just sort of a bundle of contradictions? Is he just fighting, like having interior Mm. warring with himself? Is he a Mm -mm. hero villain? I feel like he's almost like a bundle of energy. Yeah. And even though knowing historically that this whole trying to bring about world peace, that it it just wasn't to be in his lifetime, like you still find yourself rooting for him. Like I know how it ends, (laughs) but... (laughs) 
You're just like, you can do it. Right, right. So he's, is there kind of a method to all of this madness? Is there a unifying principle? Is there his temperament to explain? I I think yes. Mm -hmm. I'm going with yes. I I I would agree. He has ideas that are guiding his actions. Not that they don't ever change or, you know, get kind of massaged from one thing into another. They Mm do, just as everybody's ideas do. But he has certain kind of guiding stars. Oh, he! I feel he's a man of strong ethics. He's loyal and industrious. He's just a man who really believes in doing the right thing. So I want to call him Andra. Andra, (laughs) as his mother did. Andra! Andra! He was. uh, Yeah, so let's just start from the very beginning. He's born on November 25th, 1835, to Margaret and William Carnegie in Dunfermline, Scotland. So William Carnegie was a weaver, and they had a small cottage, very humble, and it was the kind of arrangement where the family lived upstairs and downstairs was this giant loom you have to imagine it filled an entire room. And, and when this thing was going, the noise must have been terrific. And so his mother would, would spin the linen for him to weave and and they would, you know, give his father the cloth. And his father wasn't really like you would think of like a laborer. He was a craftsman or an artisan. The, the cloth that they wove was just intricate, patterned damask, really gorgeous and wealthy people loved it. It was just, it was a fine thing. And he took great pride in his work. Right. And when Andra, Andrew, we'll just go with, and Andy, he actually was known by Andy for a while too, which (laughs) cracks me up. So I'm going to call him that. Andy was one years old. His father, the, the U.S. got rid of its tariff on these fine linens, luxury goods, as it was. luxury goods, especially linen, not cotton, mm-hmm. but it got rid of its tariff on linen. And so the demand from America increases a lot. And Andrew's actually his father is able to buy several more looms. They move to a bigger house. They're kind of moderately successful mm-hmm. for a few years. And Andrew's maternal family, the maternal uncles were very... Well, his his Margaret's family were, were known to be... Well, they were outspoken. They were politically involved. And they were as close to atheists as you got in the 1800s. They really firmly rejected a lot of the rigidity of Scottish Calvinism. But they also... Most people who rejected that would move into the Scottish Reformed Church, and they rejected that as well. So they weren't, strictly speaking, atheists, but they were not practicing of any religion. They were considered kind of oddballs, whereas Andrew's father's family, William, was considered kind of poor ne'er-do-wells. <laughs> Margaret's family thought they were above. They were She was above marrying into the Carnegie's. Well, Will was always more of a dreamer. He just, he loved tradition. He loved the the talking to fellow weavers and the midday as they did, they would go out and, and have a drink and have a conversation. He just loved a simple life, and, and but, but without really um, paying attention to practicalities or political situations or anything at all. He just... Right. Exactly. (laughs) Right. Now, Andrew's maternal grandfather had been a well-known chartist. 
in the Chartists were people who really believed that this, that Scotland should have a people's charter, some independence from England, a kind of Bill of Rights. And they were, her family, Mag's family, was very political. And Andrew was this precocious little boy who was completely enthralled with the, ra- he would go to these rallies, he'd go to the debates, he would just kind of be around breathing in this fervor, this political fervor for change. It must have been exciting. Yeah. Yeah, even at a young age. He was extremely patriotic. In 1839, the Carnegies have a baby girl named Anne who dies at the age of two. And this is not at all uncommon for that age. They think possibly it might have been measles, which had been going through the village. But what is interesting is that he never really addresses this in his biography. He never writes about it. He, It must have been awful. For, for the whole family and particularly maybe his mother and seeing her so, so hurt by that. I, I don't know, but. Right. There's some speculation that he didn't include it in the biography because he knew his mother would read the biography. Mm-hmm. And if she read it, it would, you know, he didn't want to upset her. It was too sensitive a topic. That makes sense. Going back to this idea of you know, his mother's family being kind of atheists, while his father was more of a churchgoer, but he got so horrified, and I don't know if this had to do with Anne's death or not, but he got so horrified by the Calvinist doctrine of infant damnation Mm. that if a child died, they would go to hell Mm -hmm. because of original sin. He got so horrified by that that he really rejected Scottish Calvinism after that. And he... (laughs) Became a what? Is oh, the is word? it Swedenborgian? Yes. Swedenborgian. I have apologies to any Swedenborgians Burgers. out there. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. But it was a it, that was really almost a cult. It was really into um, accessing the spirit world. Was it esoteric, like in a way, like kind of? They were well. They were in some ways. They were very um, inclusive and Unitarian. But they also had this element of trying to access, to communicate to spirits, you know, in the other world. Indeed. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. Right. And that followed them from Scotland to America. Um, But we're not there yet. No, no, no. No. In 1842, when Andy is seven, there's a Chartist riot when presenting a petition. So a large group of workers had taken to the streets with actual pitchforks and brooms Mm -hmm. to wreck the factories. They were going after the factories. And in this particular instance, Andrew's maternal uncle, Tom, who was a huge, he was the kind of, in the family, he was the one who was most into the Chartist movement. He actually goes and tries to stop the violence. He Mm -hmm. kind of steps in and he says... Let's calm down, everybody back up. But because he was in the center of all the chaos, it just drew all this attention to him as the ringleader. And he ends up getting arrested, and the whole family is kind of in... Things are risky for that branch of the family after that. And they just continue to kind of dig themselves deeper and deeper into this political movement. So as... as Factories begin to produce more and more goods. People are moving away from handcrafted artisanal work, such as what um, craftsmen like like Will Carnegie are producing, and, and they want the factory goods. And 
they they can't meet the the rate of production or the lower prices and so these cottage weavers are beginning to fall into like a deep economic crisis and meg she can see that this is a problem and she's trying desperately to bring in extra money now she they have another baby um brother tom is is born but um so there are more mouths to feed and you would think that will would maybe kind of look around and and think, okay, is there something else I can do? Is there some other way I can leverage my talent and do something? But to be honest, I guess there weren't a lot of choices because the factory owners really just gave them the choice of working for them for a lot less money. And um, and that wasn't acceptable to him. So he hung on tradition. He he hung on to tradition and um, he, he hung on to like doing the only thing that he knew how to do, which was well and good and very noble, but it was not putting food on the table. And that was really, really rough going. Right. So she ends up, she had been, her father had been a cobbler. So she knows a little bit about cobbling. So she kind of takes her brother Tom's extra work. He'll have a little bit of extra work that he passes on to her. And, you know, so she's doing a little bit of cobbling on the side. She's making I do not even understand this, but somehow she is making sweets out of pig's head. It must be like a kind of a mincemeat situation. I guess so. Mm. Pretty upsetting. But she's selling this pig's head sweets from her house and like a small little grocer's like she's gone and she, you know, she'll bring in some vegetables from farmers and things and sell them out of her home. So she is really right away. She's keeping this family from starving. So. Andrew finally, at the age of eight, gets to attend school. And he's attending a small school, like a Lancastrian school. And basically, it was a school that had been established by a philanthropist to educate the poor of the parish. So his teacher, um, he can't afford to hire any other teachers. So essentially, the setup is this. The teacher is sitting at a on a very tall stool at the head of the class. And um, all the children have to kind of memorize. The one older child is kind of in charge of his row and his form, and and they it's it's rote memorization. They learn their letters, their sums, um, discipline, decorum, and decency. I love that. <laughs> and basically everything. And and Andrew somehow I think for him like any education is better than none. And while later in life he would read all kinds of amazing things and have like a, a an insatiable thirst for knowledge, these four years of just learning memorization and rec- recitation, he did really well. He never had to be punished. He excelled. And um, this period of time from like eight years old to 12 years old. That was the extent of his formal education. That was it. Four years of school. Yeah. And he made such good use of it. (laughs) It makes me think like, what are we all doing with our children? Well, if anything, he learned how to pay attention and memorize. And those things would serve him well in the business world. And later on, even outside of the business world, he ends up being able to um, he's, he becomes a writer. He's mm-hmm. kind of an author of, of a number of books that people really respect, partly because of this ability to quote, he can quote Burns and Shakespeare. Oh, at length. At, at length. length. Yeah, yes. he just has this all in his head. And he loved that stuff. So in 1847, 
we're we've hit the potato famine and the family along with the whole factories and Dunfermline being one inter- uh, there was one interesting thing about Dunfermline to me is that the whole town was it was a one industry town mm-hmm. so not only did mag have to deal with the kind of current starvation problem, but also her sons were going to have nothing to grow into. There was no possible way out for them because they their their only option career wise was to be apprenticed to weavers. Right. But all the weavers are going under. So and they can no longer afford to buy her, you know, pig candy or whatever it was. Her pig head candy. Yes. You know, there was just no opportunity to earn anything or to even, you know, have something on the side. Right. So she decides the time has come. I have she already had two sisters in America who had been writing to her repeatedly saying, no, I really I don't think that America's the golden ticket out. It's really kind of rough over here, too. You you really shouldn't make the trip. You shouldn't come. But she more or less takes the gamble and says there's no way it can be worse over there than it is over here. Absolutely. Absolutely. She she decides to risk everything. And they do the unthinkable for it must have been for for will they they sell the loom they auction everything and they scrape together whatever money they have and um heartbreakingly i can imagine her counting it over and over and over at the table it's just it's not enough it's not going to be enough to buy them passage on this rickety horrible ship that they need to go on 20 pounds they need 20 pounds to get to america so Meg borrows money from her best friend, Ailey, and they were close. They had just grown up together and they had even attended each other in childbirth. And Ailey knew that if she was going to bet on anybody, it was going to be Margaret Carnegie. So she gives her the money, makes her the loan, and she knows that um, Meg's will, will pay her back. So they sail. 1848, they sail. They sail, however, it's it's not, like we all know, we've all read the storybooks and you've seen the little things about how miserable it was for immigrants on these ships. But this was a converted whaling ship and it's just terrible. They, they just didn't have enough of anything. Passengers often had to help the crew and it's nearly two months. And if you're not, you know, these are simple people from villages, not sailors. I, I can just imagine that it was just a cold and miserable and uncertain kind of a voyage. Right. I mean, they escape without getting any terrible diseases or, you know, they actually have, in terms of how bad it could be, they escape with really nothing, nothing worse than being kind of hungry and dirty. Um, Andrew <laughs> is like running around the ship. He kind of becomes the mascot of the sailors. And this is just such an Andrew Carnegie thing, which... You know, it makes me think of my brother James, who is always the, just, he's the favorite. He's the golden child. He just, people <laughs> just love him. You know, you like, you meet him, you're like, oh, what a great guy. And from the time he was like two or three in our neighborhood, he could ride his little tricycle anywhere, like knock on a door and people would just give him popsicles. <laughs> this was a thing and when we were growing up and none of the rest of us could just go get popsicles from neighbors, but mm-hmm. James could. And this, this is Andrew. Andrew's that kid. Andrew's, right. you know, everywhere he goes, the the sailors are like, oh, Andy, they love him. And they, they end up inviting him on Sundays. They would get these kind of Sunday treats and they would actually allow him to partake 
partake of these Sunday treats. So he's just this endearing character. And you mm-hmm. see it right away. Things work out for Andy he's and a, for James. He's a go-getter. Yeah. So Mag has two sisters in America. Both of them are in Pittsburgh. Well, actually, they're in Allegheny. Mm-hmm. So the Carnegies arrive in Allegheny, where Margaret's sisters have landed. And it is filthy. Mm. It's loud. It's crowded. It's not like anything they've ever seen before in their lives. Right. And it's a huge manufacturing place. But what do you know? William Carnegie still cannot seem to sell his wares. He He's mm-hmm. still trying to yes. weave. Margaret, on the other hand, Mag, manages to start making shoes. Yes, she, she runs into somebody that they knew from Dunfermline, a, a, someone that, that knew her and knew that she was a hard worker and was able to give her work to do on the side. So after she did all of her daytime stuff, she was well into the evening working on making shoes. Finally, William and Andrew both get work at the Scottish-owned cotton mill. So it's not glorious, but William is now a weaver in the factory. And Andrew's very first job there was to fire the boiler by putting in wood chips, which you can imagine is sort of the bottom of the barrel. Ugh type entry level work he also is changing bobbins for 12 hours a day six days a week he's making about a dollar 50 a week which in today's money is around 35 dollars a week so that to me is very interesting mm-hmm. that's not much no not at all. i mean even when you adjust it because i never really know if it's a dollar 50 maybe that's a hundred right. bucks you think like, that could be a lot right it's no not a lot <laughs> it's not a lot but he went on to say that the first week's wages that he brought home to his mother to him meant all the more than than any of the money he would go on to all of his millions and millions nothing meant more to him than that first time he had money in his little hand to give to his mother right he says i i was now a helper to my family a breadwinner and no longer a total charge to my family now i i think it's interesting that william did not want to work in a factory as a weaver so he sailed across an entire ocean to go and work in a factory to be a weaver I know. <laughs> but needs must. So he he did it. And we're thinking, great, Will, you've gotten with the times. I know it's tough. You have to swallow your pride. But now you're working, taking care of your family. America's the land of opportunity. And where is he going? What's he just... He's He quits. He quits. He quits. He decides that he doesn't want to work in the factory. He wants to rent a loom and make the same kind of fancy work that he could not sell before. He's going to do this again. The same thing, the same thing that left them broke and hungry the first time he's decided, you know, that's what I'm going to do. And it's interesting to me that he's a good man. He loves his family, but he has no real vision or a capacity to see what is around him, I like that they're going to get hungry and possibly starve if he doesn't work. And so he just keeps doing the same thing. And he's unable or unwilling or, or probably just afraid to try anything different. Right. He And even when Louise, Andrew Carnegie's 
someday wife. After Andrew dies, she hires a biographer. Biographer goes back to Dunfermline and interviews all these people about the family of origin. And they pretty much all agree that William is like one guy says, oh, he's a decent chap, but no hard worker. He was regular in his habits, a good churchman, and as moral a gentleman as anyone could wish. But he didn't love to work. No. (laughs) (laughs) He didn't love. He would idle away his time, even when he had a web, which I suppose is the loom. Like when you have something on the loom. Uh, Was reading and such, much given to foolishness. This is what they're saying about him in retrospect. Kind of, Mm -hmm. he, he was not a bad person. He just, he didn't like to work. No, no, no. Unlike Mag and Andrew, who are... Work horses. Absolutely. And I think it was from Meg that Andrew gets his ability to see or make an opportunity Mm -hmm. and and better himself and his family. And he sees progress and change not as a threat, but as an opportunity, something that will get him ahead. And so he promises his mother, someday I'll be rich and will ride in a fine coach driven by four horses. And Meg says quickly, well, that'll do no good over here if no one in Dumfermline can see us. <laughs> I'm not even going to do a Scots accent, but I imagine it sounded even better. I know. I'm a little were. sad about my inability to but do it. I wish. Yes. Had we had a Scottish friend, we would have brought them in just for this episode. <laughs> so. That is true. Although I will say Andrew tried to get rid of his Scottish accent. He had completely yes. lost it. Within he four did. years, he sort of ridded himself of it, knowing that being a Scotchy... Mm-hmm. was not a good thing when it came to getting work. Absolutely. No, he would look around, see what was happening, and figure out, okay, I'm going to do this or not do that. He he really had his finger on what it was going to take for him to get ahead. Yeah. So he, and speaking of, he pretty much right away shows John Hay, the manager of this the Scottish manager of this cotton mill, he shows him, hey, I'm pretty good with numbers. And John Hayes says, great, you can work my books. You can be my bookkeeper. I mean, this is a 12-year-old child. <laughs> 12 14, year old. 14 year, I mean, how old is he at this point? Like 14? Well, yes, yes. And he's had four years of schooling, which involved memorizing things, but apparently he could do that. But that was only part-time. Mm-hmm. So the rest of the time, he had to fill with bathing all of the spools of the new spools in this really stinky terrible petroleum oil Mm -hmm. which would make him hurl regularly (laughs) and he talks in his biography about how he was so vexed with himself that he couldn't kind of master body over or mind over body that you know it was right he couldn't believe that he couldn't conquer the the revulsion he felt at the smell but he kept at it. He did. He even says, not all the re- resolution I could muster or all the indignation I felt at my own weakness prevented my stomach from behaving in an almost perverse way. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we've all been there, Andy. He says, I never succeeded in overcoming the nausea produced by the smell of oil. But if I ever lost breakfast or dinner, I had all the better appetite for supper when all the work was done. Indeed. So now that his dad is off weaving placemats and tablecloths that nobody wants to buy, 
he is walking to and from, you know, that the old chestnut about how you had to walk in the snow eight miles back. He's doing that thing and he's making friends. He he has this ambitious group of friends. He's got these five friends and they're all menial laborers in these factories. I think all of them are immigrants, although I'm not positive. But he makes these really good friends who all sort of they're all ambitious and they all are really into debating politics and events. They love kind of thinking and engaging in this sort of intellectual rigorous debate. So they all attend night class during the winter to learn double entry bookkeeping. So he's got this goal now that he's kind of the bookkeeper of Mm -hmm. John Hayes books. He's going to sort of revolutionize the books at this place. He is not going to just have a job mm-hmm. and sort of get by. He's he's moving up. He's moving up the ladder. And people notice. So he's actually offered a different job, different company altogether. He's offered the job as a telegraph delivery boy. So the telegraph will come into the telegraph station. It will be translated And then it will be handed to him and he has to go deliver it to the offices. This is a raise. He is now making $2.50 a week, which is about $75 our time. Still not a lot, but the work is a thousand times better. So Andrew's capacity to memorize things that he learned at that little school back in Dunfermline has really stood him well in, in this job because he memorizes first all of the streets that he needs to deliver to. They're not the, um, you know, like straightforward, you know, modern streets. They're little alleys and, and, and ways. And so if he memorizes where to go, he can get there more quickly. Then he decides to memorize the, the faces of some of the men, the important businessmen walking on the street whom he might be asked to deliver a message to. And he So just, that if they're out for lunch mm-hmm. and he needs to deliver a message to them, but he sees them... On the street, he can just hand it directly to them. This, he knows, will impress people. Absolutely. They take notice of him. He is absolutely getting far in people's esteem for going that extra mile. He really does. Yeah. So people love this hustle. They're just really paying attention. He is begging during downtime, because there's not always messages to deliver. He is begging to be trained in actually receiving and sending telegrams. He knows, you know, this is another step up that ladder. So he has this aptitude for it. He's just good at it. He learned, you know, this is sort of his jam, right? This whole memorizing thing. Mm -hmm. He can do this. This is not a problem. He hears about a guy in Ohio who's sort of this, (laughs) it's like a famous telegrapher. And the reason he's famous and well-known kind of as a phenomenon is that Instead of what they normally would do was take down the message and then pass it off to the translator. And there's this delay in time where, you know, you've got, you have had the message, you've received the message, but someone needs to figure out the code. This guy can just hear it. He can piece it all together with the clicks and the beeps and he can hear it. So Andrew decides that's what I'm going to do. I'm just going, I don't need the... I don't want to have to look at the printout of dots and lines. I just want to do it by ear. So he does it and he succeeds at it. <laughs> Amazing. It, it says he was a third person in America to interpret Morse messages by ear, which right. I think is incredible. 
this kind of capacity for he's just got this, this aptitude and he's charming. So he's not just a kind of crazy person who's got an aptitude for these sort of things. He's also really ingratiating. People just really enjoy his company and and he's good at flattery. <laughs> <laughs> so the other thing is this group of five five pals that he has, they will also they set aside Sundays for their debating day. And Saturday they'll go to Colonel James Anderson's personal library. He this is another philanthropist who has opened up his personal library for working boys to come and read books in order to better themselves. So let's just remember that. Mm-hmm. This idea of the open library and bettering the unfortunates is something that's very makes a big impression on Andrew and he participates he partakes of this as a poor working boy himself and that is where we're going to leave it we will be joining Andrew for his big break in our next episode thank you Evan Cresta for mixing and editing this episode and we'll see you next time on Once Upon a Lifetime <laughs>